All right, as you know, we've been in a sermon series on community, and we started the sermon series with God himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, a community in and of himself that we get invited into. Every human relationship is a reflection of this, and then God's work in the world as he renews us as a new humanity in the church, it's also a reflection of that, not just a reflection, a participation in the life of the triune God. And what we're doing over these next couple of weeks, like we did last week, is talk about how, um, how our community plays out in light of that trinity, um, that triune community. And we talked about God being the God of all comfort last week, and that we participate in that comfort by receiving it and then giving it to one another. But today we're going to talk about confession and confrontation as a part of our life together. But here's the deal. It doesn't actually reflect or participate in the life of the Trinity because the life of the Trinity requires no confession or confrontation. Neither the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit has ever had to confess to the other one. And neither the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit has ever had to confront the other one. So this is a little bit different than what we did have done the last three weeks. What they're dealing with as they teach us about this is when the community breaks down, which doesn't happen in the Trinity, but it does happen in our relationship with the Trinity and our relationship with one another. So, confession. When it breaks down, when some body part is hurting or someone sees another body part in a precarious situation, maybe of their own doing, likely of their own doing. And the, the Bible is chock full of examples and explicit teaching on the importance of living honestly and truthfully and humbly and courageously amidst of the breakdown. It's a courage because it's uh, that when we, when we sin, and, or when sin has its way with us, or we sin, that we tell the truth. Confession, or we show the truth, confrontation. We'll start with confession. It's basically that we're called to live together beyond our self-protective ways into the light with one another. James says, and it is in context about talking to the elders, but it is an example of how the Bible talks about it in full. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Let me read two of my favorite quotes about confession. William James is a short one. For him who confesses, shams are over and reality has begun. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, easy top three best books on communal life together, called Life Together. He writes this. In confession, we break through to where community takes place. Sin has a, demands to have a man by himself, to withdraw him from community. The more isolated a person, the more destructive will be the power of sin over them, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of, unexpressed, of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. 
This can happen even in the midst of, he uses the word pious, like holy communities. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the seclusion of the heart. It's wonderful. At the heart of the gospel stands the reality of confession and forgiveness. Over and over, we see Scripture teach us this and and to, to tell on ourselves, to God and to one another. What the Trinity has created in the church is a community that makes it possible to live in the light. Now, we practice it each week. We just did it, right? In public confession. But what I'm talking about here is that interpersonal confession that proceeds from the Father, it proceeds from our worship together, but makes its way into our lives, our daily being. So what is this type of confession? I said it before, I just said it, it's telling the truth about yourself or telling on yourself. It's being who you are, admitting who you are out loud in front of another. It's, at, it's owning the acts that you've done to another. And in one sense, it's bringing your innermost self into the light for another. Of course, this all starts with God, where the motivation of that springs forward, but also, in confession with others, it can drive you to God for further and deeper confession. It's just simply when you tell someone you have failed or fallen, and it's sometimes the person that you failed that you tell, and sometimes it's telling someone you have failed God, and sometimes it's telling someone that you have failed yourself. And it's scary. And it's hard, but it's beautiful. It's a great wrecking ball pounding at self-protection and hiding. It's a release valve to all the anxiety of hiding and lying. It's a healing balm of just owning it and still being accepted with another. The first church I was a pastor of had these things called triads, prayer triads. Uh, They were neither always triads nor always prayer oriented, but we had them. It's where three people would meet together. This church, um, it was for encouragement and sharing, but within the rhythm of this program, it was the most organic thing we ever did, but in in this reality, we asked them to put into it a rhythm of confession and assurance to one another. The first ever prayer, prayer triad, which actually Um, created, in one sense, the program at the church was, and this church was started, they didn't know who the pastor was or who the elders were going to be or anything like that. It ended up being the would-be senior pastor and two elders. And about a month or two in, while the church hadn't even launched yet, the then would-be senior pastor said, you know, we should just go ahead and do it. Let's just go full in. Next time we meet, let's just tell our darkest, deepest secret, our most grievous sin. It became the energy for a church community that could own their stuff. So how does it work? Not prayer triads, but confession. It works by experiencing the grace of God with one another. It always starts with grace, safety, and trust in God. It's, It's creating a space that God has created for us to be, to be free before one another because God has already welcomed us at our worst. It's 
Grace because it breaks down the barriers of pride and shame and self-independence and just all that stuff. It's grace because it creates a place to share our deepest selves, our faults and our failings and our victories and our goodness, and to hear the words from another that our Lord's grace is good enough and strong enough. It's grace when you confess your sin to somebody. It really is a grace to your neighbor. It is an act of love of neighbor because you're embodying the power of God to just maybe, maybe accept you in another person, that his grace is bigger than all your folly or failings. Here's what it's looked like in my life at times. You know I have the Schlupfinkel Bruderschaft, which you all know, you know, can say perfectly. It's the 12 guys I meet with every year, but we also have, and in that annual meeting includes time of confession and celebration, all the other parts of community, but it does include times of confession. And we also meet regularly by Zoom with three of us at a time, a prayer triad, if you will. That's a beautiful way to do it. Another way is one of my people I confess to, we just call each other confessors, was John Bourgeois, who was at RUF for many, many years, is now in Nashville. And ours was a little bit more formal. And that was, we would ask these kinds of questions. We'd ask questions about food and drink and sexuality and relationships, like forgivenesses, grudge. We'd ask about our bodies, exercise, and rest. And then at the end of every meeting, there was this question, my least most favorite question. What are you not telling me or don't want to tell me? And sometimes we would say, I don't want to tell you. And that's okay, because you're creating the space for it. Now my confessor is much more of a more normal relationship, and we just kind of included and, and habituated us meeting more often and adding that to it. So that's really what I'm trying to say, is that, 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 that at some point in your relationship with your closest friends, that you would introduce a rhythm of confession and giving assurance to the other. Pastor Chris uh, Horn does this, and he has a confessor that they've been meeting with for years now, and they switch off every week. One is the confessor and one's the assurer, you know, and then they'd switch off week after week after week. Just to have room in your, uh, in your friendships for such a thing. Now, this stuff is really, really hard. When I first became a Christian, I was like, this stuff is real. This is awesome. I was like 16 years old, so I invited five guys that were in this kind of larger Bible study together. And I said, you know what, we should like take this confession stuff literally and, and carefully and like seriously with each other. And so I began to tell stuff that a 16-year-old may or may not be doing a lot and assume they were all doing too. And we never met again. <laughs> I didn't know. I was a young Christian. I was like, everybody, but this is what Christians are and do. That's not necessarily the case. So you must choose your confessors wisely. Don't demand it of them. Make sure they're ready. Make sure you're ready. Work it out beforehand. But it's important that you are a safe person too in it, not judgy or too easily shocked. But also, watch it, because this happens too, where those little relationships become, uh, they don't take that sin very seriously at times. And it's just like a, um, it's a hijack of confession and vulnerability and turn it into a camaraderie of sin instead of a camaraderie against it. Happens ever so slightly. Often not even intentional at first. 
there's a sneaky way in which we can be in the middle of a confession and then back off because we're like, ah, this was going to be good, but I think I can get all the benefit without telling the whole thing. I've been mid-confession with my wife, and I realize she's going to forgive me, and I'm like, oh, good, I don't have to say it all. Not good, by the way. Not, not any time recently, baby. This is all good. Uh, truly not. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, so it's not always going to work well, which is why we keep practicing it. It's why we do it every Sunday. I guess I'm trying to say is that I'm, what I'm not talking about is a friend's episode. I'm talking about living in the reality of who you are with other people as they are. And the reality is that we falter and fail and we need to be known in that. But the reality is we rebel against the God who loved us. And we need to be known in that. And the reality is that we forgive that God's grace doesn't just forgive us, which we need to be reminded of, but also fuels us to die more and more to the self and live more and more to Christ. We just forget it. I'm going to say this, and this does not require, I, don't, I don't intend no condemnation on it. But Christian friendship without confession as a part of that is less than Christian friendship. Because pride and hiding and shame, independence are crimes against community. So we unburden ourselves in light of the gospel of grace and move forward. And we defeat this self-protection by vulnerability and grace, by telling on ourselves Jesus' conforming us, forming us into a community that lives in the light, in the truth. And it speaks of its sins and brokenness, as we said before, when they've been broken in comfort, and we'll talk about celebration next week, all that stuff too. But it includes that as well. We must be able to be the gospel, the mouth of the gospel to one another. Okay, one more confession quote from Bonhoeffer. Let this one sink in. Why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than it is to another? God is holy and sinless. He is just, a just judge against evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother is as sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to another than to the holy God? But if we do find it easier, we must ask ourselves whether we have not been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sin to ourselves and pardoning ourselves, giving our, granting ourselves absolution. Who can give us the certainty that in the confession and the forgiveness of our sins, we're not dealing with ourselves but with the living God, God gives us one another. And in so certainly through our brother and sister, our friend breaks the cycle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of another knows he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. Recommend again, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay, so the next part of my sermon be shorter because the scripture actually emphasizes confession more than the second part of confrontation. Now, I say that with a caveat. God has no problem confronting us all the time, but the way it talks about how we do that with one another is 
much more in the quick to confession, not quick to confrontation, probably because he knows us. English translations of the Bible often call this rebuke, sometimes reproof. In some ways, you could call it an intervention, or you might be able to say something in modern-day language of giving unsolicited help or advice. But confrontation is helping others live in the light. It's a subset of love of neighbor. It's, it's, it's a subversion of the story of someone being able, not being able to be known. It's bringing the innermost them out into the world in order for that grace to come forward. Just like confession is bringing your innermost to the Lord and to another so that could be known. We'll start with Solomon, David's son, probably one of my top five Proverbs, top ten for sure. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That word rebuke here is a pretty harsh word in the Hebrew. It means something like chiding or chastising, something similar to that. It's a good translation because what it's saying is it's better to be utterly lambasted by someone than to have a friend not talk to you about what they think is going on. Now, he's not saying, so go out and utterly lambast people. That's not what's going on. You know how Proverbs work, right? Okay. Solomon is saying, love does not remain silent. Love speaks, not in that chastising way, but it is better to be chastised than neglected, even though chastising isn't the way to go. He even says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted, that we can welcome them, that they are for our good. This is the whole philosophy behind um, like therapeutic interventions. I just watched the John Mulvaney special, and it was, if you don't know anything, he's a comedian who has two months in rehab, and he was in really bad shape. And so a bunch of other comedians and friends, 12 of them, did an intervention with him. And he said, I was so mad, and they saved my life. I know that those kind of things are for extreme situations, but Solomon is saying something a little bit different than that, definitely for the extreme situations. But in one sense, the life of wisdom is one that has many interventions in it all the time. Because enemies will fawn over you, but friends in true community will wound you in love and grace. Love speaks up, and it wounds because it loves. Our Lord Jesus' teaching in this is just so tight. He first says, pay attention to yourselves. That's all of us. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, rebuke in this passage is from the Greek, so we're a thousand years away in different language. Rebuke here, I don't love the translation of this one because the original language is, is in our cultural moment, you, rebuke doesn't quite have the feel for it. But that word is, it has a double meaning. And listen to the meanings. To honor someone, you, you, you reprove someone because you're honoring them. Think about honoring their agency. Or to mete out in due measure. So what Jesus is saying, and this is mind-blowing and heart-shifting for us, 
that if you see someone in a bad way, like all of us can be, you honor them by rebuking, and you do this in a way that distributes that rebuke in the right measure, that meets it out in due measure. So he's basically saying, don't dishonor your friends and family in the church or your pastor by staying silent. Intervene. But don't be the sin police either. That's not your job. You don't need a sin radar detector. Mercy still covers a multitude of sin. Just don't excuse, don't hijack mercy into neglect and cowardice. Jesus says, pay attention, all of us, to pay attention, that we would stay on our alert. Because if we love someone, we'll speak to them. And when they see them burdened by sin, and this is not just the sin that's perpetrated against us, though that is necessary at times, but where we see it in another person. So our heads are to be on a swivel as we pay attention to what's going on, but it's not about a swivel of sin detection. It's about to get to that place of the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of the relationship. Now back to what the community is and what the, 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 um, what the, God, the community of God is. The forgiveness of sin is the gateway to a freedom. If he sins, rebuke him, and then forgive him. That's about as tight as a phrase as you can get. It's moving beyond our fears and our apathy toward a holy, courageous confrontation born of grace for the sake of another, even if we're putting that relationship at risk. So go for it, y'all. Don't hate each other with neglect, but don't hate each other with judgmentalism either. Amen. Don't hate with silence. Don't be the sin police. The, the, the Holy Spirit does not, we don't need a fourth person of the person of the Trinity. And guess what? Telling someone off on social media is not Christian confrontation. Neither is unfriending them. No, that requires coffee and a conversation and a long path with someone in love and patience. All this is founded on relationships and for relationship. It is a, a peacekeeping mission for the body. And so we don't peace fake and we don't peace break. We peace make. So how do we do it? I'll give you some of the many interventions that I've received. Giorgio, your gifts make you dominate. Giorgio, your insecurities make you terrified. Giorgio, you self-sabotage because you're scared. Giorgio, I don't believe you. Giorgio, you're a caricature of yourself right now. And after one long, kind of like everybody in the room was telling their whole story, they were like, yeah, I still don't think I get you. What kind of music do you like? Because they felt like it was performative in some way, which we all can do, right in the middle of being vulnerable. Tools I've learned when confronting. Ask questions. Don't accuse people. They're probably bearing a burden greater than your burden to go help them. You don't fight against someone, you fight for them and with them. 
make sure you believe the gospel for that person before you speak to them. Remember that you, in the middle of it, could turn real judgy too, and you might need to get rebuked right back. Remember, you won't get it right, so it'll take fits and starts and trials and errors, their errors and yours. And make sure the whole time that you're as confrontable as you're trying to confront. Bonhoeffer, this time on confrontation, reproof, rebuking, is unavoidable. God's word demands it when another falls into open sin. The practice of discipline or discipleship in the congregation begins in the smallest of circles, among friends, with each other. Where there's defection from God's word and doctrine or, or a life in peril, it, 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 hmm. it imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation. When that happens, the word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured into. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls another back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy. Okay, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I was going to end the sermon. I actually had three endings, but I'm a little short on time, and I was going to do like a J.R. Tolkien ending, which is like three or four endings at one time. You know what, I, you know what I'm saying? But I'm going, to, I'm going to cut the difference. Okay. Not that one. Okay, this one. Uh, so when, when, when Jesus is doing that teaching that we, we talked about, the very you know, kind of curt phrase of rebuke him, if he repents, forgive him, he goes on to say, And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and he repents, he returns to you seven times and repents, you must forgive him. And the apostles respond, increase our faith. Somewhere between you got to be kidding me and, oh my gosh, I have so much to grow in. And you have the power to shape me and change me. And so I'm turning to you, make my faith greater in this kind of grace smorgasbord that you're trying to call us to that's filled with truth, honesty, and in the light. And so I'm going to end with reading what your elders and deacons have tried to do in incorporating it into their life together. Every year we gather and we sign this document, a, a series of pledges that say this is how we want to live this out when community can break down and when there is confrontation and confession needed. And so I will read them to you now in closing. I will never speak poorly of my fellow elders, but I will honor them. As love requires, I will rush to my fellow elder if he's in sin and reveal mine own willingly. I will work for reconciliation among any member of Redeemer and their leaders, including myself. I will listen to both words and hearts, being able to articulate another's view to their satisfaction. I will strive to hear criticism, differences, and conflict in the best possible light, letting mercy cover a multitude of sin. I will repent when needed and grant forgiveness when asked. 
I will seek self-awareness about my emotions and personal narratives, especially when I'm out of harmony with my brothers and sisters, and I will stay curious about how the Lord is using our life together for my good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, those vows the elders took are greater than we can achieve. The things we talked about today is greater than our community can muster. And so we beg, like with the apostles, increase our faith. Let us trust that what you've brought in your kingdom is a kingdom full of truth and grace. And be because of your great sacrifice, we are safe with you and with one another. We pray in your name. Amen.